This is The Guardian. Just a warning, this episode, as well as having some adult themes, touches on addiction and mental health issues. I'm Grace Dent and this is Comfort Eating from The Guardian. A podcast where we pay homage to the lesser celebrated foods in life. Because even as a restaurant critic, I believe the food that matters most is often that snack you cobble together when you're curled up on the sofa. Each week, I ask my guest to lift the lid on what comfort foods have seen them through their lives. Because you can tell a lot about a person from what they eat behind closed doors. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, people. Welcome back to season two of Comfort Eating. This time we are actually in my house. We were meant to do that last season. The builders had other plans. I'm here now. I'm not going to lie. I am a bag of nerves this morning, which I am trying to soothe with a large glass of banana Nesquik and some strawberry Pop-Tarts. Because guess who is coming round? It's only Stephen Fry. I feel very exposed. He's going to see how I live. Um, I think he seems like a nice man, he won't judge. I can't really list all the things that you might know Stephen from. He's an actor, a comedian, a writer, an audio book narrator. He's a panel show host. He's written novels, non-fiction, and three, three volumes of autobiography. He's lived a pretty full life, to say the least, and I am excited and more than a little bit daunted to be sharing my dining table and a mystery snack with him. Oh, there's my Pop-Tarts. Mmm. Season two. Let's do this. Stephen Fry, welcome to Comfort Eating. Thank you for um, asking me. You've caused several arguments already between me and my partner because we've just moved back into this house and I wanted it to be perfect before you arrived because I have a sense that you're a man that gets things done and you wouldn't have. See the paintings that are just sitting around. Oh. See these pieces of art that haven't been. Where do you get a man that is a good man but I'm talking about my partner here, but we'll also hammer a nail in a wall. I am not such a man either, Grace, and I promise you that uh, I am yeah. very familiar with piled-up pictures that uh, <laughs> need a place on the wall. In fact, I remember once inviting people 
round for kind of tea one Sunday afternoon and basically saying the price of your cup of tea is everyone take a picture and put it up somewhere. I don't care where, just for heaven's sake, get them up on the walls. Did that work? It does, actually. And once they're up on the walls, you you realise that having to think about where they go is almost irrelevant. Just shove them up. Do you want to put a picture up <laughs> before you go? Would, yeah, would it be presumptuous to give you like an orbital sander and see if you could do a bit of DIY before Ooh, you I left? Would, I would not advise it. I'm not good with things like that. Um, okay, as you know, this is the bit of the podcast where my guest presents me with the comfort snack that they wouldn't necessarily eat in front of people normally. They do it privately and then we get to share it. Stephen Fry, what have you got for me? Well, I've brought along, um, you can hear a clatter of plates, something which really should be the basis of all comfort food, and that's firstly toast, in this case sourdough toasted, to give it a sort of crack and, you know, give some work to the jaws. Okay. And here you can see some quartered cherry tomatoes. Okay. I just... Now, no. you probably think this yeah. is sardines. I, I would have thought it was sardines. What have you got? It's actually skippers. You, your face, <laughs> your face. Oh, dear. Oh, skippers. dear. okay. Brizzling is another word for them. And they're, I think they come in northern waters, like all the best seafood is in cold water, as I'm sure you'd agree. So, I'm gonna, so is a skipper... It's like a baby sardine. It's like a tiny little silvery... Fish, smaller than a sardine. My cats are going wild somewhere already in yes. the house. Oh gosh, you've got cats. Thinking. Here, well, we may you be are the best to them. guest ever. They're saying. <laughs> and I'm I'm mushing them up with the well, tomatoes in a in a very basic sort of way. There's nothing. Something's very medieval about this. No, there's something very Viking about there, this. There kind of is, isn't there? But. You needn't feel guilty about it because it's an oily fish. And as you know, doctors will tell you that oily fish is an essential part of one's diet for omega-3s and all kinds of goodness. Um, So, Grace, you're going to have to, if you can, close your eyes tight and pretend to enjoy it. But I think you will. (laughs) Tell me when you eat this. I would eat it in front of the television. But importantly, as I've discovered... Through bitter trial and error, <laughs> with a plate under because the oil can drip down. Oh, mmm, mm. isn't that simple and delicious? It is. It is the first time I've ever eaten skippers. Mmm. I love how you're so practiced in this. You can literally just, like, is it distend your jawline? <laughs> just put the whole lot in. Oh. <laughs> You see, that's a much more delicate fish than I thought it was going to be. Mmm, it is. How long have you been eating this for? Mmm, since I was a boy. I grew up in rural Norfolk. But actually, it was a very old-fashioned sort of childhood. Mm. You know, the fishman would come in a horse and cart. There was a delicatessen in Norwich called Lambert's who sold skippers. And I think my mother, because she liked them too, and persuaded the local grocer who would deliver to stock them. There's a wonderful early 19th century divine, as they used to be called, i.e. churchman, called Sidney Smith, who was a very famous wit. And he once wrote in a letter to a friend when he got translated um, from one parish to another. He was sent by his bishop to a parish in Yorkshire, I think. And he says in the letter, you ask what sort of a place this village is. I think I can best reply by saying 
We are simply miles from the nearest lemon. <laughs> Isn't that good? And I grew up miles from the nearest lemon. Yeah, and the idea of being, you know, within 100 miles of an avocado or something, yeah. let alone the sort of ramen and um, kimchi and things that Unthinkable. the people eat now. I mean, we've never heard of such things and we couldn't possibly imagine ourselves eating them. As you've said, you grew up in rural Norfolk in the 60s and you've described your upbringing as somewhat old-fashioned. So how much was that reflected in the food you were eating? And I certainly don't want to give the impression that it was Downton Abbey, but we we did have a wonderful woman who cooked, Mrs Riseborough, who was just a perfect old-fashioned English cook. You know, she made treacle tarts and apple pies and things like that and shepherd's pies alternating and things like that. And and it also had that old-fashioned English thing of being regular. If it was Wednesday, then it was treacle tart. And she would alternate because my brother liked it with cornflakes on the top Mm. or possibly frosties, you know. And I liked it with more with a sort of breadcrumby, like a crumble top. And so every other Wednesday it would suit me. But, you know, rolling pastry and things like that. And she taught me how to, uh, well, at least <laughs> I've tried to reproduce, but I've forgotten how to make a rose to go in the centre of an apple pie. You know, yes. you put squares of pastry and then cut them with a knife and open the, you know, the rose petals and it sort of sits in the middle there. Was she there when you woke up to make breakfast? She didn't make breakfast, no. She did come very early and her sister-in-law came as well who scrubbed the floors, Mrs Wright. So it was Mrs Riseborough and Mrs Wright. And I think for breakfast, basically, I like most children of my generation, just obsessed with cereal. Yeah. You could just eat it out of the box and pour it. I liked sugar puffs enormously. And goodness knows, they must have forced me into a, an addiction for sugar, mm. which lasted for, for many years. Also, Farley's rusks with very cold milk on, broken up. It's fantastic. That taste of Farley's rusk. I can taste it. I haven't Mm. eaten those things for 46 years. I can taste Mm. it in my head. Can you? Oh, absolutely. What even were they? I don't know. It was a sort of maltyish, slightly maltyish kind of quality. In a disc? Yeah, that's right. And then you could eat them? Yeah, as a biscuit, as a rusk. Put milk on them. And you'd kind of be left with them. They were the kind of thing that they pacified you. Your parents would kind of give you them and walk (laughs) off to just shut you up. Yeah. It sounds idyllic to me. Yes. Like idyllic. I mean, so this idea of beautiful lawns and Mm. somebody coming in to make treacle tart. (laughs) Yes. And actually the thing that when I look back is is the oddest is we had gardeners. I mean, more more than one gardener. And I wouldn't want to give the impression my parents were wildly rich or anything, but they Mm. did need that. It was a big vegetable garden of asparagus beds and or peas and beans and um, black currants and all those sort of things, rhubarb and lots of fruit and vegetables. And the gardeners would come to the back door presenting the day's catch, as it were, from yeah. their vegetable beds and plots. And Mrs. Wright would say, I want those, I want to get me some potatoes. And, but, oops, you, excuse okay, me. That's, I, and that, we have to leave that in, I think, definitely. That, the ma- a man enjoying his skippers so much. And a little they, breathy wind of skipper coming your way, I'm thank afraid. Thank you, they are a delicate fish. <laughs> what I find interesting is those, that until the age of seven... And then you go to boarding school. Yeah. Now, I know 
many people that went to boarding school and that early, they never talk about food being a wonderful thing. Yeah, and it wasn't. I mean, uh, school children uh, of all kinds, in all kinds of schools, love to make up revolting names for the school food, you know, baby's legs for some sort of weird roly, um, roly-poly thing, uh, frog spawn for, for yeah. semolina. Semolina tapioca, which um, I actually love. Oh, you I love, lucky thing. I love stodgy... Pale wobbly puddings. <laughs> I like them. Having with a, turned into one myself, yeah, I'm delighted to hear it. <laughs> but you know, with with a with a skin on it. Oh, that's what makes me vomit. I mean, literally, I keck, I I I, you, I retch. Was there anything you enjoyed at boarding school? Any the tuck food? shop. <laughs> the tuck shop basically was was the one. And tell me about the tuck shop. Is this like I I see it as a kiosk? Down it was a corridor. Like that. It was the end of a corridor, indeed, with a sort of serving hatch that was locked yeah. all the time. And the school, and again, this is going to sound so weird. The school had a butler called Mr. Dealey, and and his son <laughs> ran, ran ran the tuck shop, so he had the key. So we all sucked up to Colin Dealey uh, and said, "Oh, Colin, Colin." And what's so interesting when you look at the, the sweets one loved is they were preparing one for further addictions. They were all sugar, but a, a lot of them were things like um, Spanish Galleon, which was a pretend rolling tobacco. It was a yes. shreds of coconut, brown dusted coconut, and all wrapped up just like a, a pack of Golden Virginia rolling tobacco or something it's or nice. drum. Yes, yeah, so grown yeah. up. Grown and you up. could buy candy cigarettes with little red dots at the end that looked, made it look as if they were alight yeah. and they came in a packet yeah. that looked like a Chesterfield or a camel packet yeah, and there were that. licorice pipes mm-hmm. and that's one addiction that was basically you were being it was being reinforced inside you yes tobacco let's disguise this as something manly and grown up that you will love when you're a little bit older smoking and then also there's a little sherbet fountains where you've got a, a straw which is made of licorice to suck up this white powder <laughs> So what does that prepare one for much later in life? We didn't think it at the time, because I had no idea what cocaine would be <laughs> or anything. But it is quite interesting that all these, and most importantly, is they were forbidden. That's to say yes. there were very small hours that the tuck shop was open. Boarding school sounds to me, for what little I know of it, it sounds like it was turbulent. Mm. Yes, I mean prepubescent is is fine. You're just a sort of you know run around and you friends and gangs and uh, mm. things like that. And sweets are probably the biggest thing in your life. But uh, uh, once the most dangerous drug in the world is given to one by oneself, testosterone, and it it just I mean that's why I think I went so completely crazy at school. And, um, and also, I, I wasn't very inspired by the academic side of mm. things. I, I had the Fortune, stroke, misfortune, uh, really the absolute definition of a blessing and a curse, of a terrific memory and, and an ability to grasp ideas quite quickly. Yeah. And I could BS for, the, for my country in terms of essays. I, okay. I kind of knew what they wanted to hear. So are you winging it and getting away with it? <clears throat> yes, in terms of, yeah, I did my, all my O-levels when I was 14. Uh, before I was 14, in fact. But this sounds like you're a perfect pupil, in a sense. You know, you're incredibly smart. You don't have to revise. And your biggest vice at this point is the tuck shop. 
And then yeah. what happens? What, well, what, love, how does it manifest itself? Love happens where I just lost all interest in even pleasing school teachers. I just I thought it was all a waste of time. And, and because of the, love, though, yeah, the because, only thing of, that, <clears throat> because right. of your hormones. And, yeah. But was yes. there anybody to lust after at your school? There, there was. <laughs> I would say the boy's name, but he was so beautiful. And I'd yeah. never associated beauty in a male or female with such an extraordinary feeling mm. inside it. I'm, so I'm sure many listeners would have had a similar experience in, in some sort of lyrical teenage love where the object of your love uh, you you have to find out what their timetable is and where they usually walk so that you can yes. accidentally bump into them and see where they're going and you feel that you do bump into them more than coincidence you know that actually nature and the cosmos are aligning you uh, because it was meant it's, to be it's a sign yeah and uh, exactly when your mother starts to get phone calls and letters home what is your key thing that you're being pulled up on what how are you naughty what oh you... i stole um i stole from shops and from oh uh, from everywhere and, and and mad things not even things i needed i mean so you, did all... you steal sweets yeah, i did when i could yeah handfuls of those in the in the pocket and screwdrivers and hammers from an <laughs> okay <laughs> hang on from wine an ironmonger's store just things like well i'll have that <laughs> i don't know why <laughs> <laughs> the problem was, which I didn't know, and which, interestingly, my parents suspected, as did my housemaster. It's a wonderful thing to be able to say, housemaster, mm. because in the old days, I would describe the time I got expelled when my housemaster gave me permission to go to London. And people go, what's a housemaster? And they need to explain. But fortunately, J.K. Rowling has done all the work. Uh, so everybody knows that the housemaster is like, you know... Minerva McGonagall is the housemistress of... Yes. Do you you want me to be very honest? Um, You have uh, been the third wheel in my relationship with my partner for the last three and a half years because he cannot sleep without harry potter playing now this i don't want to embarrass you and yet and yet it is enchanting but he literally cannot sleep so it does mean that some nights when we're together in bed doing what people do in bed (laughs) he then rolls over and i hear your voice (laughs) say Harry went into the library like that. And that is... and I, I mean, He doesn't I was... yell, Expecto Patronus! <laughs> at the proper moment. <laughs> <laughs> Look what came out of my wand. Stop it, Stephen. Right. Okay, enough. <laughs> um, let's get back to Housemasters. But yes. um, <laughs> it was... It, what was the final straw? How did it all end? Well, it's, it's preposterous, really. I... Uh, and eventually just left and went to London without telling my parents. Oh, it was awful. And um, I stole a credit card, a couple of credit cards. I stole a wallet. Well, I stole a coat from a pub somewhere. And, oh, the coat had. It's a <laughs> squalid I... story. But anyway, with these credit cards, I went pretty much ape around you look Britain. bashful. Yeah, I am. I know. It's well, so it's not something I should boast about. <laughs> no, but this is it. There's... There's a marked change in how you're holding yourself as you're saying oh, it. Dear. You know, it's so. Yeah, but yeah. it's, you know, how old were you? Sixteen. Um, by that time, I might even have been seventeen. I think I was seventeen years. What did you do with the credit cards? Did you go oh, to restaurants? Stayed at the Ritz one night. <gasps> oh, I would sit <laughs> smoking, <laughs> smoking ridiculous cigarettes. I, I kind of discovered the great 
Sobrani cocktails, which were coloured cigarettes. Oh, with, I, God, I, you like I used Didn't to you feel sophisticated? Sobrani. Oh, so, yes. You just feel I felt beautiful. Like, yes, you feel like you just, Mia Farrow in... in, in, just, in because they're just delicate. And they're, I mean, how can they possibly be doing you any harm? Quite. Exactly. So beautiful. Awful. Hang on, I need to know about the Ritz. So you're, so you're 16 years old. <laughs> yeah. You swagger into the Ritz. Well, you what do to, you order? I mean, I didn't dine there. I mean, I had room service, but I, I didn't go into the dining room, which was a rather frightening room. It still is. It looks like it belongs in Versailles, doesn't it? I love the fact that you drew the line. <laughs> going to the dining room. And yet, what did you order on room service? Well... I think it would have been, I'm afraid, exactly the kinds of food that I thought were glamorous at the time, like, um, you know, entrecot steak, uh, Ooh, you yeah. know, with a tomato on it and some mushrooms, a classic sort of Bernie Inn-style steak, you know. <laughs> I, I was never one for um, the prawn mayonnaise that it would go with it, but I yeah. certainly liked Black Forest cherry cake. Oh, yes. A Black Forest gato is... Delicious. Schwarzwalder Kirschzahne Torte, as my mother calls it. In her, it her, sounds her Austrian so grand. German. It does sound better like that, doesn't it? I remember going to Swindon, and when I got to Swindon, I checked in, and they rolled the card through, and I went to the room, and then I went out again for something or other, a cup of coffee or whatever. And when I came back, there were two men in my room, and I just. I was used to hotel life and thought, well, we've got male chambermaids. I, I said, no, no, it's all right. You don't need to do anything in the room. And they said, um, <laughs> Mr. Gray, they said, which was the name of the person whose card I'd taken. And I said, yes. And they went, Wiltshire CID. Oh. And uh, I, I was handcuffed. And so the game was up eventually. And then I was sent off to this prison, which had the loveliest name, Puckle Church, which sounds, sounds so like delightful. a little cottage with roses around the door in, in the village of Puckle Church. Maybe some yeah. lovely anthropomorphised animals <laughs> that wear little jackets. Yes, possibly. And <laughs> it, it was wasn't in the, like that. <laughs> no, it wasn't at all. It was a young person's offending place. Were you prepared at all for that type of life? I mean, did yes, boarding school precisely. help? Precisely. You put your finger on it, Grace. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that one says it as a kind of joke, but mm. if you've been at British boarding school from the age of seven all the way through to, uh, you know, adolescence, then prison is, I wouldn't say a breeze exactly, mm. but, but there's being away from home in a strange place with loud voices and new people to meet and people in authority over you telling you where to go and having to find the rules out on your own and just having to depend upon yourself and make your own bed and do all those things that once, you know, is, a, I suppose, a good thing to do. But, is it scary? Um, yeah, at first, certainly. I mean, when I was on my way there. Uh, but, but what I discovered was, because it was a young person's institution, Almost all the, the boys there who were my age, 17, 18, 19, I think, 20, it was their first time ever away from home. Mm. There was, I shared with a Welsh uh, kid who couldn't read. He was, he was about my age, uh, I guess about 17. What um, was the food like? 
Uh, the, the food was actually not nearly as bad as you might imagine. It was, I seem to remember I would always finish it and not be revolted by it. I kind managed, of canteen I'd say type. no custard when that was, <laughs> you know, but canteen-like, yeah. I mean, you know, those strange sort of civvy ladles that they use for peas, you know, that lunch mm. ladies use. And What was the nice thing to eat? Well, for me, it was all about quelling hunger. Yes. So some of the meat was okay, sort of mints and mm. things like that. But I'd try and negotiate with them and say, if you give me half as much meat, can you give me twice as much potato? Because I knew that would <laughs> fill me up more. <laughs> so your charm came in again. <laughs> well, I tried. And yeah. you were charming and, and did that work. It, it kind of did. I mean, I, I, I was regarded as an oddity. I mean, it, <clears throat> it reflects very poorly on that aspect of British life that we're also painfully familiar with, which is the class system. And mm. as they knew that I... I was not a typical convict and just the way I spoke and carried myself and mm. the kind of weird humour that I tried to, to, to employ. And so I was very quickly nicknamed the professor. And because I taught this Welsh fellow who couldn't read, I taught him to read or started to teach him to read and he picked yeah. up on it very well. And, and I remember the bishop came, the bishop of Bath and Wells. Um, the who, baby who, who was later Bath glorified in an episode of, 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 <laughs> of Blackadder. It's absolutely true. And he came and, and spoke and then asked, does anybody have any questions? And I put my hand up and said, yes, my Lord Bishop, I do have a question. <laughs> I was rather startled at being addressed as my Lord Bishop. <laughs> and I was kind of going full Barchester Towers on him. And uh, he said, what is it? I said, it's just a word about the soap. He said, the soap? Yes, the soap that Her Majesty's <laughs> prisons provides for us is of a very inferior quality. It, 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 it doesn't float, it isn't scented, it doesn't lather. <laughs> All that can be said of it is that it keeps one company in the bath. And <laughs> he said, well, I, I will, I will, uh, I will certainly make inquiries about the, 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 the soap. <laughs> I, I know. <laughs> Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Kara Berry, host of Everyone's Business But Mine, and I am an all-inclusive addict. Enter Club Med, the best all-inclusive for you and your family. With resorts worldwide from their family flagship resort, Club Med Punta Cana, to their only mountain resort in Canada, Club Med Quebec, they have everything you need to relax with their 20-plus sports activities, wellness programs. You can dine on delicious cuisine and make memories with your family. So book your next getaway with Club Med. Visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. This is really not a usual story. This, you know, to go from this part of your life where you've really messed things up and then to be awarded a scholarship to study English at Cambridge. Of course, the university wasn't to know that I was on probation. I was, still had my second year of probation to run. Did you not? Ha- <laughs> no, right. Well, 
uh, put it this way, Grace, wow. they never asked, and I certainly didn't volunteer it. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I did my uh, entrance interview and then did the exam, and then suddenly you're, a, you're an undergraduate like everybody else. It's at Cambridge where you befriend Hugh Laurie and Emma Thompson on the university's comedy and drama scene, and afterwards you and Hugh buy a house together in East London yes, when, you, when you graduate. I was really, I didn't know this about you. And then suddenly you must be responsible for just feeding yourself for the first time. Were you a cook? Could you cook? Were you making culinary discoveries? Well, um, Hugh's girlfriend, Katie, was there as well, and she was a very good cook. She taught me to make pesto, for example. She she handmade pesto with pine nuts and basil in the, you know, the proper sort of Italian way, and we regarded that as pretty... You well, know, it's out like there. it's like alchemy the first time yes, you see that, isn't it? Because it turns into a unique taste that yes. is so different from the sum of its parts. It's and so oily miraculous. and the colour. Yeah. So that that was one of the first things. Yeah, you made. and 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 you know, we'd do the usual st- student post student things of of uh, spaghetti bolognese and other such yeah. things. You know, whatever was around. But uh, I enjoyed playing my part in that, and when it was my turn to cook, but what I hadn't discovered any of the useful tips and tricks that I think most people are aware now of how to prepare food rather than just rushing at it. Yes. Um, and that's something we can thank MasterChef and other such programmes for, yeah. is that it, so much of it is the preparation. And then if everything's prepared and correctly chopped, diced, mm. sliced, whatever it needs to be, then the actual cooking becomes so relaxing and so enjoyable because for most student-style cooks, you just think, Oh, here are all the ingredients, and you immediately put one on to heat, and then it says, "Oh, and now add chopped onions." Oh God, I've got to chop an onion. <laughs> Meanwhile, yeah. the meat is burning or something. What? Yes. So I kind of I didn't know any of that then. So so it tended to be, as so often with amateur cooks, just piles of far too much dishes, and uh, and and it was a mess. But we always claimed we loved it. You go on to make TV with Hugh and Emma throughout the 80s and the 90s. So you have TV roles in Blackadder, Jews and Worcester, a bit of Fry and Laurie, obviously. It means you're becoming quite famous. I'd say very famous. Yeah, so it was a a very exciting time. Everything was so thrilling for us then because doors were opening in broadcasting and in writing and in, in, you know, in the career side of things. So... Does that change where you're going and where you're eating and things like that? Yes, it definitely changes. In my case, I just embraced this new world that was opening up of restaurants. And so that was a real thrill to discover that I could eat in these places. If you'd had a not very nice time with boarding school and then (laughs) Young Offenders, did fame kind of take that pain away a little bit? Yeah. I mean, I, I chased after the visible signs and signals of fame enormously. Mm. I, I mean, it's no accident, given my history with credit cards in, as a teenager, that uh, I immediately had to have, you know, a great concertina of gold, platinum, you know, cards. And I then started buying classic cars as well. Preposterous, but... So this money was rolling in of the kinds that I'd never seen before or imagined before. Yes. <laughs> and I had no outgoings, really, except whatever I chose to spend it no, on. Just, and I was not smart enough. You're a single enough. man and you have... Yeah. 
What was interesting about it was a time entirely without relationships. I, mm. I, I was um, designated a, a celibate in those days. I hadn't had a relationship since university. You know, for 15 years, I, I was partnerless. But, but I was out. I, I'd come out as gay, but I, as I used to say, I, I reserve the right to choose the gender of the people I don't go to bed with. <laughs> and, um, but I, I, it's not a religious or spiritual reason for being celibate. I think I was just rather afraid and had very good reason to be. As I left university in 1981, which was around the time the HIV virus mm. entered the, the bloodstream of, of far too many people. Um, and that wasn't the original reason. I was just afraid of the gay world of the mm. nightclubs and the, the looks you get when you go inside a nightclub, people raking you up and down with their eyes and then turning with a sneer. It's cold, isn't it? It's very cold. Yeah. I was drinking a lot and I'm afraid I was also doing what oh, so many people in the media business were doing in the 1980s and yeah. 90s and that was popping the um, gross national product of Peru up my nostrils uh, for yeah. a while, which is an appetite suppressant, of course. But the next morning, after you've managed to get to sleep, if you have, you wake up at you know, 11 or 12 and you then just throw food down yourself in the most appalling manner. So I, I was putting on quite a lot of weight. So what did you have the next day? What would you have? Would oh, you... I'd cook up sausages and eggs and things like that and throw on baked beans and, and put it all on toast and just wolf it down and then still be hungry and have three bowls of cereal. I mean, you know. And you're putting on weight. Yeah. It astonishes me that I was so keen on this lifestyle or, you know, or at least pursued it without... Because it, it, you know, to look at it rationally, just lying there in a bed, wide-eyed and drippy-nosed, unable yeah. to get to sleep, th hating yourself, and yeah. hearing the bottles go into the back of the, the bin lorry, <laughs> and that sort of oof <laughs> feeling in your stomach. Oof, oof, I've there's, wasted another day. I've there's wasted. always somebody oh. clearing a bottle bank. Yes. <laughs> oh, dear. It's extraordinary. When did you call time on this? Um, I think really, uh, it mostly really when in 1995 I had a bit of a breakdown. I, I was in a play and I, I left the play and drove to Europe without telling anybody where I was going. How old are you, about 30? Ah, uh, yes, seven? five, six, seven. Yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. And um, yeah, I, I didn't realise what a fuss it would make. I, you know, I, I, I realised that I'd made a tit of myself, but I didn't know people were quite so worried. So I came back to try and face the music to some extent, and that's when I started to get treatment and, and, and diagnosis first, and then treatment for the bipolar disorder as it was diagnosed. Mm -hmm. And a year or so after that, when I was a little bit more confident, that I got approached by a wonderful Scottish producer who worked for the BBC Scotland, called Ross Wilson, who said, would you be interested in making a documentary and finding out more about your mental health and about the nature of this? And I said, OK, let's mm. do that. I said, I might suddenly, after a week, want to run away again. Yeah. He said, I'm prepared yeah. for that. Well, we'll, we'll see. And, and so I made it, and it was an extraordinary experience to meet people so much older than me and, and who'd lived with it for, for much longer and been more affected by me, and, but also who'd come to views about it and were able to talk about it in, in, in fabulous ways. And the programme, it seems, was just extraordinarily well-timed because 
there hadn't really been much talk about mental illness. It, it had been very much buried away. There was still a, a huge amount of stigma, in, especially in the world of office mm. and, and, and employment generally in HR or personnel, as it was yeah. probably still called back then. And to see someone reasonably in the public eye talking about it and also to hear the witness of all the people discussing it was was uh, made a huge difference. And even in the small and what you might think obvious way, it's called manic depression or bipolar for a good reason because mm. there are two sides to it. It's about swinging between two poles, mm. a manic pole and a depressive pole. And the manic is as important as the depressive. In, indeed, anybody who lives with someone with bipolar disorder will probably tell you that the manic episodes are much harder to live with than the depressive yeah. ones. I mean, depressive ones are sad, but usually the, the, the sufferer just wants to be alone in a room somewhere, curled yeah. into a ball, um, just, you know, not interacting yeah. with anyone. Yeah. Whereas when you're manic, you can do anything. Your inhibitions go, you're ambitious about things, you can be deeply inappropriate in public, or you can go, you know, could be shopping mad and just go off and buy huge things. Yeah. But 37 is quite old to actually have some answers, you know, to be able to... Does yeah. this make you look differently at everything on why you ended up in the Ritz at yes. the age of 15, ordering steak. Yeah, it let me off the hook to some extent in my... Because I realised that that things like cocaine and alcohol and even food uh, uh, and, and even throwing yourself into work can numb and disguise yeah. that sort of awful feelings inside. And if you're feeling low and down and unenergized, then a stimulant like cocaine, although it's obviously so much more and worse than just a stimulant, but it seems for the moment, to, oh, that's given me, I can now go out at night and I can enjoy people's company and I can speak really fast and blah, blah. And then when you get very um, hyper, well, my friends used to say Stephen takes coke to calm him down. He's the <laughs> only person in the world to do this. They often thought that's what happened. He's <laughs> just so, having a chill one yeah, tonight. Exactly. Just a couple of grams of coke. Because I have, I mean, you know, sometimes the manic episodes can be quite terrifying. I mean, I, I have one. It was so sad that it should happen on such a sweet occasion it was the memorial but it was in a theater so it was like a show mm. celebrating the life of richard Briers, uh, tom good from the good life oh, and many gosh. other things yeah. and he was a, such a dear man and for some reason as i arrived at the criterion theater in piccadilly which is where it was taking place i could just feel this thing happening inside me and i, I was sitting next to frank finley who's <laughs> the old, grand old actor who turned around, will you stop fidgeting? <laughs> I thought, oh God, sorry. And, <laughs> and, then, and then I slipped away and I, I went back to my flat and I started cooking. I started preparing this salmon and quail's eggs and <laughs> thing salad. And it was so perfect. I mean, I, I, it, I did a long dish of it in, and I... I, I rolled the salmon up into little tubes and then had the... I mean, That's it was so unbelievable. Dainty. Quail's eggs yeah. are so dainty. But, and it didn't, it didn't satisfy me. I, uh, I started hoovering the room and cleaning things. And, and then I sat down. I thought, this is really... I feel so weird. So I called up my psychiatrist, Billy. He's an Irish chap, incredibly wonderful man. And uh, I said, I, I'm feeling... And he said, come on, you can, you can explain it. Put it in words. I said, I'm feeling like Joan of Arc. I'm feeling radiant. 
I'm feeling like a, a transcendent feeling inside me, as if I'm yeah. going to float off and fly. Yeah. He said, all right. He said, all right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then he faxed um, some lanzapine, that's it, which really does make you feel dopey, but, but it yeah. did take the edge off. But I, I really thought I, was, I, I could have gone out into the street and made a complete arse of myself. I n- I've never felt quite so extraordinarily transformed by this feeling. And it, it was quite yeah. scary because I enjoyed it. When I was making the documentary, I did say to almost every contributor, I said, here on the table is a button, and I make a little button mark with my finger and say, Mm. if you press this button, your bipolar disorder will disappear. You will Mm. never be depressed in the way that it can give you depression again. Mm. But all your manic feelings, your feelings of optimism and power and strength and exuberance and grandiosity and all those feelings, they'll never come back as well. You'll be be in the middle. You won't be a zombie. You'll, You'll be just a normal person, but without those extremes. Do you want to press the button? And they'd all look at the button and they'd grin and go, no, I don't. W.H. Auden said, don't, uh, don't take away my devils or my angels will fly away too. Mm. And, and I, you sort of know what he means to some extent. When I look at your life now, you know, you've spoken so beautifully mm. about falling in love with yeah. Elliot and getting married yeah. and then you now... You now live together in Norfolk, mm. back where it must be around the area that you were kind of left Not when far. you were my seven. My mother's still there, my sister's still there, Amazing. my brother's still there, yeah. I mean, I hear that you're the main chef at home. I am, yes. What, what do you cook? What, um, what's, what's on the menu? It will be, a, sometimes we'll get one of those boxes in, because usually Edith is very kind and knows that I'm worrying about my weight and there are some quite good delivery boxes that will make sure. Because... Yeah. Basically, if it's in the fridge or in the house, I will eat it. So the important thing is not to buy it, and he knows that. Oh, and of course, he's always wanting you. to buy me because he knows what I like. What's what? your downfall if it was in the house? Cheese, probably. So Elliot says, I happen to have a pound of incredibly good brie. Yeah, that's basically, I open the fridge and I see a great wheel of brie, and I'm <laughs> He said, but it's so good, look. And it's so... What is your go-to recipe to show somebody that you... I will, love I will cook Elliot a chicken pot pie, an oh. American recipe of a chicken pot pie, which is just a fantastic dish. I mean, yeah. it's, it's a simple chicken pie, you know, and you can have mushrooms with it or not mushrooms and carrots and peas and things like that. You can sort of muck around with it, but ideally it should be a quite creamy kind of what sauce. What do you like about pepper doing the cooking? Is there, is there an element of, like, showing oh, gosh, love? Oh, yes. gosh, absolutely. I mean, I, re- I never used to get that, but I, I completely now, as an, as an act of love to your best beloved, obviously, mm. mostly, but also to friends who come, I'm almost not interested in eating it myself. It's the act of presenting <laughs> it and, you know... And of course, you say "shut up" when they when they shower you in praise. Oh no, it's nothing. I, I please, I just slung it together. But you're inside. It's a gift you can give people, and it's one, you know, that doesn't involve going to a, an expensive jeweller or or showing off about. You know, it, it's just it's just such a pleasurable thing to be able to do for someone, isn't it? It's been much remarked upon that he is thirty years your junior, mm. but. What I'm interested in is whether that age gap is reflected in your food tastes. How different are your approaches to comfort food? Yes, and in that case, he will, if he's feeling low or or, or there's a you know a, a, a series to binge on 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 one of the streaming entities, he 
is quite happy to have three packs of Monster Munch, for example, and knowing <laughs> that they are utter rubbish, whatever they are. I mean, I've had the odd one. They're strange. They're like a packing chip, really. I mean, that's sort of strange. Oh, I thing. love a Monster Munch. But they're in Munch. the shape of little Monster They've got little yes. vaguely in the shape of Monster Munch. <laughs> no, not even a pickled onion Monster Munch, Stephen. Have you never had one of those? I, I probably have, and I probably quite liked it. But, <laughs> but your point about the comfort for a yes. generation, it means something to him that it doesn't to me. He will probably remember getting a packet when he's coming back to school and, you know, mm. the Simpsons theme tune is playing on the television and he's at, in that suppery yeah. schools over for the day mood that is a mm. very powerful one when you're a child and mm. will exert that power on you for the rest of your life when you hear that theme tune. Only I, with me, it would have been the magic roundabout rather than <laughs> you, uh, the Simpsons, if you know what I mean, and it would have been, a, a, a you know, for me, a bowl of, of naked porridge, as <laughs> my brother and I used to call it. That's to say, you just pour Scott's porridge into a bowl as if it's muesli and add and add, add milk and, and sugar. How did you meet your husband? My, my agent had a, a barbecue and yeah. he came along with some friends there and we fell into conversation and just never stopped. From yeah. We just spoke to each other all the way through and he came back with me to, to my flat and we carried on chatting and other things and so on. <laughs> you know. Oh dear, you made me go all gooey and embarrassed. And actually at the moment he's in America and I'm here. I, I got back a couple of weeks ago, I just finished mm. filming there and he's staying there to sort of close the house up there in, in America and... It is astounding. I'm sure you've had the same thing on, on whether you do a FaceTime or a you know similar sort of talk with someone. They have a, a clock on it, and and so you talk, you wander around the house, you yeah. chat, and then you think we've been talking for two hours and ten minutes. Yes. My goodness me. Do you miss him? Oh yes, oh yes. But because of technology, one doesn't have to feel utterly cut off. So, and, and of course, the nice thing about it is it's. So many of the discussions are, are domestic or about, you know, that thing where there was a leak in that thing because of, and you go, oh, yeah, what did you do about that? And you've got this for 10 minutes, you're talking about something so banal that other people would just, you know, uh, want to stab themselves in boredom at what you're talking about. But it's somehow terribly pleasing to think that you're, I suppose, especially because I was such a figure excited with the world, that the world can shrink just to the size of, us, us two, and our little lives, and our silly little domestic arrangements, and everything, and that's all yeah. that we can, you know, be excited by, and, and to hell with, you know, Boris and Biden and Putin and the rest of the world for the yeah. for the time being. You know, I love locking the door at the end of the night and just putting pajamas yes. on. And that's the difference in my life, I suppose, is in the eighties, nineties, and the beginning of the this century. I counted every night I couldn't go out as a, as a lost opportunity. Mm. And now I count every night I can stay in as a triumph. And, yes. You know, and I look at the diary and go, wow, I've got three nights in this week. Way. So in 2018, you were diagnosed with a very aggressive yeah. uh, prostate cancer, which has since been treated with surgery. So how did facing that illness affect how you think about your own mortality? I think in a very English and certainly I'm afraid in a very me sort of way, the first thing that I thought of when the urologist said, yes, uh, there is something there, it's an aggressive adenocarcinoma, I think is the correct mm. title for that sort of cancer. And you think, oh, how am I going to tell my mother without upsetting her? How am I going to tell Elliot without upsetting him? How am I going to, I mean, Elliot was more prepared. My mother knew nothing. I hadn't mm. told her I was even being examined. Was Elliot was prepared for it. And my sister, and how am I going to, I don't want to upset them. And, uh, you know, I must be brave. You know, you, you, you sort of think about how you 
how you will do it. You regard yourself as under a sort of examination from from fate, and that you you better pass the test, as it were. So it's a, it's a complicated sense of of all those feelings. You worry about other people, not out of uh, uh, fabulous altruistic unselfishness, but just because you don't want this to be an awful pain you, yeah. you you know you know in a sense that your job is, is to lie down and submit to what you're told to do by the surgeons and doctors who are going to be dealing with it and then yes i did think you about dying to live. And, yeah and of course also uh, without wishing to be too pessimistic the, the cancer went away but it can come back and and it, it does in mm. a slightly larger percentage of, of men than one would like to think so i still have to undergo tests all the time and so i'm fully prepared to say oh, i'm afraid we found a spot here or a spot there so there are things i'd still like to do books i'd like to write and types of role would be fun to play or documentaries would be good to make but really it's just time with my husband and time you know being alive that would be a sad thing to cut short but i've had so little to complain about in my life really that uh, anything now is a kind of extra in a way and so i'm quite happy about that you're a best-selling author actor <laughs> panel show host campaigner <laughs> national treasure you're ridiculously multi-talented my final question is i want you to tell me something that you really really suck at oh music music uh, <laughs> dancing anything to do with rhythm i love music and i listen to music all the time and i'm passionate about it but when i try and perform it or if i try and sing if I try and swing a shoe in, 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 in rhythm, it's a disaster. Um, you know how some people can't public speak and, and they say if they stand yeah. up in a crowded room to speak, their throat goes dry and they start to tremble. Yeah. I'm like that with singing, not with public speaking, which doesn't seem to worry me at all. But it, if I'm alone in a shower, I can open my vocal cords and sing to a degree that pleases me. But if I know there's somebody else in the same <laughs> postal zone, <laughs> I will I will just... Uh, and the voice goes like that. Yeah. But I tell you, it is official that I can't sing, and I have it on the highest possible authority. I was at a, a funeral. There's a, a rather wonderful liberal reform synagogue opposite Lord's Cricket Ground mm. in St John's Wood. And my friend, the film director, John Schlesinger, uh, had his uh, funeral there, and, and a lot of people from, from his world were there, Alan Bates, Alan Bennett, and I found myself um, next to Paul McCartney. And they were singing. It wasn't, you know, cantor, uh, temple singing. Uh, it was, you know, songs mm. that most of us knew of one kind or another that John had found important in his life or whatever. And I did what I always do. I mimed. <laughs> and uh, so Paul turned around and said, you're not singing, Stephen. Why aren't you singing? I said, well, I can't sing. So everybody can sing. Sing. Um, so... <laughs> The next one came and I started to sing and he turned around and said, you're right, you can't shut up. <laughs> so if Paul McCartney tells you you can't sing, you can't sing. It's official. <laughs> Stephen Fry, you have been absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much for comfort eating with thank me. Thank you for asking me and thank you for doing your best with the tomato and skipper on sourdough. I won't be having it again. No! What a shame. <laughs> This episode of Comfort Eating was produced by Gabriella Jones and Emma Roberts. The series producer is Leia Green and the executive producer is Kathy Drysdale. Music and sound design is by Axel Cacoutier and this episode was mixed by Ian Chambers. 
If you like comfort eating, please leave us a review. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. And use the hashtag comforteatingpod to get in touch about the podcast or share your own comfort foods. I'll be back on Tuesday. If you're in the UK, you can contact the mental health charity Mind by phone on 0300 123 3393 or online at mind.org.uk. A directory of contacts for people outside the UK can be found at befrienders.org. This is The Guardian. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrier. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today we're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us.